Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to this edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. So far in this series on power to the people, we focused on citizen engagement and people power, exploring how the political volatility and change has caused uncertainty for the climate. Government U-turns, changes of direction and policy, as well as widespread failure to meet our climate commitments have all led to an increase in activism and engagement. Of course, for most of us, the biggest worry is the energy crisis, the rising costs and the insecurity of supply. Today, we're talking about just what is going on with our energy here in the UK, internationally, and what the future might look like. To help me discuss this, I'm joined by Dara Vias, who is Director of Advocacy at Energy UK a trade association for the energy industry. She has a background in local government, policy and civil society and consumer affairs. Dara, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And it's a great pleasure to welcome back to Planet Pod, Dr. Jeff Hardy from the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College London. Jeff researches what a future low carbon energy system might look like and how people and businesses will operate within it. Jeff, welcome, so good to see you again. It's a delight to be back. Naturally, this is a huge subject. Um, so forgive me, but can we start with some basics and talk about just what is happening with our current energy market? Dara, you've been working in this space for some time, especially in your former role at the Citizens Advice. Can you perhaps start by explaining just what's going on? Where are we now? About uh, just over a year ago, so in around um, August 2021, um, prices went up. And we in this country have become accustomed to sort of 30 years of regularly low kind of stable prices. Um, And that was a shock. And we also had a retail energy market that was um, opened wide up by a competition market inquiry in 2016, which essentially was to stimulate choice when it comes to switching your energy supplier. And that meant that there was like uh, lots and lots of energy companies, some of whom perhaps were not the best equipped to be an energy company for the long run because they weren't perhaps hedging in the right way or had business models that didn't quite work when prices went up. So that led to 30 companies going out of business over the course of the last 18 months, well, 15, 16 months. And that's added about £4.8 billion to everyone's bills. So that's one thing. Prices went up. Sorry, why Why did why did the bills go up? Because the energy companies folded? When an energy supplier goes out of business, there is what's called a supplier of last resort process. Um, and if it's a very large energy company, um, there's a statutory authorisation, which means the government takes it over until it's able to sell it. So with the supplier of last resort, um, the main thing, I think, and it's important to stress this, is to ensure that people don't lose supply, that they retain any credit they've got and that's passed on to their new supplier and what happens is um, the regulator steps in looks for a new supplier for that group of customers and moves them over and then those customers are free to switch away and go to anyone else so the main thing is making sure it's a smooth transport so that they're with a company that is a going concern and operating but there's a real cost involved to that because if company a goes out of business and company b takes the customers Company B will not have hedged and bought energy in advance for those customers because they couldn't have foreseen that they'd be taking on them on. And so the costs associated are essentially paid back via everybody's bills. 
And so supplier failure in this market costs everybody a lot of money. It costs us all a lot of money. So that was one thing. And the reason prices spiked primarily is because of economies opening up after COVID, really. Um, And so we're in a tumultuous phase and prices stayed high and not just high, they've, they've actually been quite volatile. So they have come down recently and it's the volatility, I think, that makes this conversation more tricky. So we've had that going on. Then, of course, the terrible war in Ukraine which has had a huge impact on gas supplies globally, and that's impacted prices globally, and that has meant that has led to the volatility, which has led to uncertainty, which has led to an unstable market. So that's the kind of prices side of things. In your opener, you talked a bit about politics and uncertainty there. Um, I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll go into this a bit more, but you do need a stable regulatory environment that encourages investment when it comes to low carbon power and you also need to ensure in these sorts of circumstances and because of the war having an impact on gas prices there's been a real spotlight on improving our security of our supply which means we want to be investing in that low carbon clean energy Um, and politics doesn't help that having an unstable regulatory policy governance framework environment that doesn't encourage investment doesn't help kind of either either kind of induce investors into the country nor does it um, give people the certainty they need, nor does it bring prices down. <clears throat> so it seems to me that, just wearing my kind of consumer hat for a minute, consumers are really paying for kind of failures of capitalism in some sense, failures of these slightly kind of cavalier energy companies who are setting up left, right and centre. I mean, if 30 companies have gone bust and yet, you know, most of us probably were not with those companies, it's quite worrying that that they were allowed to operate in the first place. So it feels like a huge lack of regulation of from some time ago. It's not just a response to to Ukraine and to the spike in prices post-COVID. I mean, you know, uh, allowing somebody just to set up an energy company who was clearly not, in that case, probably not fit to do it, feels like the consumer yet again is bearing the brunt of a, a failure of regulation and a failure of, of the system. That doesn't seem very fair, really. No, and it's not fair. I agree. Um, I think that from a from a consumer perspective, actually, um, and I have to say, I do know that this was an industry position as well, both the trade body, Energy UK, and Citizens Advice, and many others, sort of were calling on Ofgem from sort of 2010 um, onwards, when dozens of companies entered the market with sort of limited checks. Um, we've been calling on, on Ofgem to sort of fix the problem, because we want well-run companies, we want good competition in this market. Mm. And that's not to say all of the companies um, were not good. There were some very good companies having to operate in incredibly difficult times. Mm. Um, yeah. I think the thing that I would point to, if you're, if the listeners or, or, or anyone else is interested in this, is um, the Bay Select Committee did a brilliant... Um, inquiry and I think it like really shows the power of good checks and balances actually in our um, parliamentary system looking at the role of Ofgem in all of this because it had a huge impact on millions of customers Um, I think Ofgem's put in place quite a lot of different um, things to try and tackle um, the the sort of gaps where there were regulatory gaps Um, but I also think that the regulators done that in a time where essentially the companies that are still in this market are actually doing a really good job to still be here, you know, with the prices the way that they are. The, the problem then goes back to, to, to far, partly a failure of, of, of 
regulation and Ofgem not doing what it was meant to be doing, or you, in your words, probably not doing it soon enough. Um, but it also is partly because of the way that our energy is sourced, isn't it, Jeff? It's partly because of the mix that we've got, you know, and our perhaps our longer term failure to to invest way back in in alternative sources certainly would have made us less dependent on imported energy. Yeah, that, that's definitely fair. I think we, we've definitely got a pace problem um, and a foresight problem, I think, in many ways. Um, the other thing, I'm going to say it now and then I'll probably say it about 300 more times during this um, during this podcast, is the biggest failure we've had is the lack of attention to energy efficiency. So energy efficiency um, means that no one burns the fuel because every unit you can save is a unit we don't have to buy on volatile global markets, particularly of gas. Gas has been the, the major problem throughout all of this. And it's problematic because you know 86% of homes use gas to heat in winter and for hot water, um, but also gas is um, the fuel that sets the price in the electricity market most of the time. And because gas has been expensive, power prices have been expensive. If we'd have gone crazy on energy efficiency, as we should have been doing um, over the last decade, um, when we've actually stepped back from energy efficiency, we would be in a much better position right now. But even ignoring the fact that we have stepped back from energy efficiency over the last decade, the signals were there to have gone crazy again on energy efficiency once we saw the prices kicking in. And we still have nothing in place, no national strategy. It, and it, it just, it still boggles my brain. I think I was ranting about this last time I was on with Dara. <laughs> this was like pre-COVID, for goodness sake. Anyway, all of the messages also say, go much faster on zero carbon alternatives uh, in the UK. There's a load of challenges to doing that. Assets like offshore wind farms or onshore um, solar farms or onshore wind or being allowed to have onshore wind in England, for example, when an offshore wind farm takes on average about 10 years to get built and connected, some onshore assets take quite a while or rather you can't connect them because the grid is constrained. So you have to wait six years before you can connect the asset, even though you could build it in six months, for example. There's lots of constraints in the system. What we need... Um, and I'll probably come back to this again, is a really good holistic strategy about how we're going to hit net zero um, and then line up everything behind that so that we can get there at the pace we're going to need to get there as well. So th those are all things I'm sure I'm going to come back to in a ranty sort of way at some point during this podcast. But, um, but that's the challenge. We've missed out on a decade of energy efficiency and um, we don't have a strategy for going fast enough to hit net zero at the moment across the entire economy. I love a bit of ranting. Tell me a little bit about this grid grid connection business because there's a huge amount of conversations now about, you know, the solution to net zero is building a new new nuclear power station or dozens of nuclear power stations. It's having lots and lots more onshore and offshore wind, although we're not allowed onshore wind this week because I think that one's been changed again. I can't, you know, it's hard to keep up, isn't it? You know, the ever winding road that is government policy. But this grid connection business, because this is something I think people won't necessarily understand if they're not deep dived into energy so you build your wind farm takes you six months you know I personally think they're beautiful spectacular things you know you put up your turbines and then they have to sit sit there for six years before they can actually 
give you the energy that they're creating. Why why is that? Is it because there just aren't enough power stations, substations, you know, bits of cabling? What what's, what does it mean? What's the reality of this? Well, let me let me split it into onshore and offshore. So onshore um there is an issue in lots of different parts of the grid, particularly in the local grids. So the grid that kind of like takes power from the transmission system, the national grid, and then delivers it to end customers, to homes and to businesses. Um, There is huge interest in onshore wind and solar at the moment um, because the the price of those technologies has come down a lot, but also clearly the, the price of electricity has gone up a lot as well. So if you wanted to build a solar farm at the moment, you could probably get your money back within two to four years at current prices. It's just incredible. Um, And that's, you know, with no subsidy whatsoever. However, um, because of that, there's a huge amount of interest. Everyone is looking for a connection to the grid. You know, everyone is finding a packet of land upon which you could build it and then um, seeking a grid connection. And that has two effects. So one is every time someone asks for a grid connection, the, the grid company has to basically assume that someone is going to build that asset. So they basically reserve the capacity on the grid. That's fair enough. It's kind of like, you know, you, it's a perfectly reasonable process. But the, the effect of that is um, it looks like all the capacity is gone. Um, so there's one side of it. But the second side of it, quite a few areas around the UK where it's a really good place for a solar farm, the grid capacity is basically locked up. Um, so there'll be no connection possible before 2028. So that doesn't mean I'm going to build the solar farm now and wait. It means I'm going to wait until 2027 and build it then. Um, you know, and I might sell that capacity between now and then to another customer and you'll have all sorts of things going on. So it's just, it's a funny situation, but you're right. What it basically means is it's waiting for typically a substation to be upgraded so it can take more power. That's generally the gist. There might be some cables and so forth that also need fattening, I think is the correct term. Um, offshore where we have an amazing resource in the uk so um i saw some figures from the world bank that the uk wind resource offshore is 1800 gigawatts so to put that in context our entire power system is 100 gigawatts so we have a vast offshore resource Um, and at the moment we have plans to build about 50 gigawatts of offshore wind um, on top of the 10 plus we've got at the moment. I forget exactly how much we've got. Um, now, the problem is, or the opportunity is, um, that you're going to need to bring that offshore wind onshore. I'm demonstrating with my hand this is a podcast. I don't know why that's useful. Um, but, you know, so what you're going to <laughs> have to do is basically um, bring it from the wind farm to the shore and then into the national grid somehow. And the, the issue we're going to have is building out that national grid fast enough because wind, the resource for wind and the seabed for where you can put wind farms is where it is, which means bringing it from offshore to onshore means you might be bringing it into all sorts of areas where there are already a lack of grid capacity, which means the grid's got to catch up in some way um, in those places. There's a lot of innovation going on and thinking about how you can join wind farms together offshore. So you can only bring it in through one cable. That's really good or even join kind of like one part of the UK to say a part of Scotland um, via a wind farm so that you can kind of like have it going either ways. That's really cool as well. But it's still going to take a long time to build out that grid capacity. 
And it slightly boggles me that we didn't see this coming and start to get things ready. Now, I'm going to say it up front, it's a really difficult thing for the regulator to allow investment ahead of need, you know, because there is a chance you're going to build it and then the wind farms never come. And therefore, the customer is, you know, we as consumers are paid for that. I, should, I say this as an ex-regulator, by the way. I used to work in Ofgem. Um, so there's always going to be that tension. But we kn- we've known for a long time that offshore wind is the way to go. And it just, again, this holistic strategy should have said, get that capacity built because we know exactly where the wind's going to be and bring it in and therefore kind of like get it done ahead of need in this case. But it's just problematic. Surely we should have built that capacity because we always wanted to phase out coal and, and fossil fuels anyway, didn't we? So if we, if we had to build more capacity to get offshore wind in and onshore wind in, it would have been used at some point because we knew we were taking other capacity out of the system. And um, Dorit, it's, it all comes back to lack of planning, doesn't it? Lack of foresight, lack of strategy. You know, you talked about holistic strategy, Jeff. I mean, the, you know, one wonders where these policy decisions are, are really being made, you know, and which fag packet they've been written on. Because this, you know, even as a <laughs> as a non-expert, it seems to me pretty obvious we've got a fantastic source of clean energy around our shores. We should have been planning to get the clean energy onshore. You know, this is just, it's, it's mind-boggling, really, isn't it? I understand what you're saying. It is mind-boggling. I'm not going to defend the bizarre situation we're in. But what I would say is the last few months, well, since summer, really, have made it worse because we were finally getting somewhere. We had the Energy Securities Bill in Parliament, first decent bit of energy legislation since 2013. It was going through, and one of the best things it was going to do was create a future system operator and what that future system operator would do would be, it, you'd ba- it, you'd, you'd basically separate and modernise the current system operator, which is operated by National Grid. And doing so would increase investor confidence because you're signalling to the to investors that we are taking this seriously and we are preparing for our future system. And what the system operator could do would be to effectively focus in and manage the mass of new technologies that are being connected to the system. Whether we're talking about electric vehicles or we're talking about offshore wind or onshore wind or solar, um, nuclear, it's important that, you know, we have a strong public sector body that is properly resourced so that our energy transition can progress and escalate without kind of the significant delays that we've had. And that the energy bill was paused by um, Liz Truss in that she wasn't just pausing the energy bill, she's paused all legislation, I think, or most. And we still don't know where that is because in the interim, we've had an Energy Act rushed through, which primarily was to ensure that people get the support they need for their bills this winter because this winter prices are extraordinarily high and that is absolutely right however there's there's bits in that legislation I've got a problem with but (laughs) if we just go focus on the energy security bill for a moment you know I'm not saying missed opportunity because we've all got our fingers and toes crossed that the current prime minister is going to reintroduce it but what a shame eh what a shambles if we could do this on a more micro level would it be more effective? What about if we had local sources of energy, um, both generation and storage? I mean, if we actually had, you know, communities having their own energy sources 
so it wasn't being transmitted miles and miles and miles because you put solars on your roof and you can plug it into your own electricity system could we scale that up to a community level could you do that could you have mini grids mini local local sources of energy production and 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 consumption so that's um that's a question that we've been looking at in uh, in a research project called the energy revolution research consortium um and that's all about um it's called smart local energy systems but that's a horribly kind of like complex and not particularly helpful terms but if i break it down what we know is that in the future we're going to have um a complete transformation of transportation with a mixture of replacement of internal combustion engines with electric vehicles but also probably in a lot of places a real focus on active travel so how do you how do you do that last mile or last couple of miles of kind of like people to places um we're also going to have a transformation of heating and obviously we need to decarbonize electricity um and local renewables have definitely got a role to play in that now i'll say it again energy efficiency makes all of that easier because you can basically reduce the overall demand for all of those things you know electric vehicles are more efficient than internal combustion engines um by a lot up to four times um the uh, a lot of the new heating technologies like heat pumps are much more efficient than gas boilers often by three times or more so you've got a lot of efficiency built into these devices the clever stuff that we need to think about is if you're going to have all of these batteries on wheels running around all of these fancy new heating technologies not just heat pumps by the way another bit of legislation that was lost in the energy security bill was heat network regulation so the government was going to tell the regulator that it would now have to regulate heat networks and heat networks are basically where you generate the heat centrally and then pipe it to all the homes so you could have a massive heat pump or something like that or use waste heat um to kind of like to fuel that um and then pass it through um pipes to everyone's home so it's just another network just like an electricity network or a gas network um but that's now stalled somewhere in the mix but to bring all of these things together um in a really smart way that's where you need um these smart local energy systems and what that really means is just something that is there to optimize so to basically say kind of like there's so much demand for heat so much demand for transport so much demand for electricity many of those things in the future are going to be electricity driven what's the most optimal way to kind of use all of those assets we have to use the minimum amount of energy um at the right time to deliver the end services and i'll say one final thing which is what we haven't really worked out in the uk is the extent to which we want to focus on national kind of like decisions about energy versus the role of local decisions in energy and kind of like therefore where you put the power from kind of like national to local decision makers in all of that and i've written dara's going to come in now and i'm going to let her come in because there's loads of stuff here there's no real agreed definition for a local area in this country you, you know you, you have unitary authorities you have boroughs you have districts you have parish and town councils in some areas and you've got regional authorities in some areas as well and they all play different roles and there are places that are perhaps not captured by all of these definitions or any of them in lots of cases and because of that it means approaches to local area energy 
vary greatly. And when I say local area energy, massive broad brush, it could be a plan to retrofit houses, it could be a plan to roll out um, smart EV chargers, it could be working with grid on connections, you know, it could be investing in solar on local schools, like there's lots you could be doing. So it's very broad, but there's very little publicly available information. There's very little consistency in decision-making and engagement. There's very, very disparate and different approaches to funding. And there's really, really different um, approaches to engagement. So whilst there is a lot of benefit, there is also the potential for a postcode lottery. And we know that when we are in a situation in this country where there is a postcode lottery, inevitably it is poor people who lose out. It's a big ask on consumers, citizens. It, it is a big ask, Dara. But but these, you know, people feel really passionate about the places that they live in, and there are community networks everywhere. And let's just look at what's happening. I mean, it's not really a corollary, but you know, let's look what's happening with food banks. Communities are capable of rising to the challenge of actually taking control of the environment they live in. And I think that you, know, I would completely agree with you that that we need a national strategy. But I think energy and and you know the, the the ability to keep yourself warm and to 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 light your home and to run your car is something that everybody everybody or keep your fridge going is something that everybody wants. And if we empowered people at local community level, we could transform the way that we produce and use energy. And it, it's clear that the national system and you know Bayes, the Business Energy and Industrial Strategy Department, is failing us. So maybe it's time to empower our communities so they I can mean, step up. Just to be clear, I'm not saying there must be a national, everything has to be nationally driven and nationally delivered. What I'm saying is there needs to be national coordination. There oh, there does. Absolutely. Need to be. There needs to be a framework that delivers the energy transition and the future energy system in a fair way. Mm. And that is about having fair, equitable outcomes. So, Which is not what we've not got at the moment, the is it? But, and, but you might not always have the same process for everyone to engage. Mm. That's the thing. Mm. Now, you know, like, I desperately believe in the power of civil society I have you know always had some sort of volunteering on the go in my adult life I think it's incredibly important to think about that point at which civil and civic society meet and what our role is in that whether that's just as uh, a person who lives in a place or a person who's more actively involved in communities of interest communities of place but how you identify is very different it could mm. be with a group of people who are scattered around the country because you yeah. all share an interest, or it could be with your geographic community. I just don't think that we should take that for granted either. We have eroded civil society in this country so much over the last 10 years through lack of funding, lack of support, and lack of value as well. Um, food banks are a great case in point. We are in a situation now where high energy bills Rocketing interest rates on mortgages, um, high rent, high price of food means that people with an average household of an income of like between forty and fifty thousand pounds a year are being regularly referred to food banks. And when the food banks are becoming warm banks too, aren't they? It's a terrifying, absolutely terrifying situation. What do you think is going to happen now? Can you? I mean, and it's an impossible question to ask, but can you project forward? You know, twelve months, twenty-four months. Have you any idea? Will we be having this conversation, exactly the same conversation in 12 months' time? Will things have shifted? What's your best guess as to where we might be in, 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 the, in the next sort of, you know, year or two? Jeff? Mm. I'll say once again up front, 
that if we haven't sorted out an energy efficiency strategy, um, I was going to say I'd tear my hair out, but I'll tear someone else's hair out, I think, because I haven't got any. Um, so, but, you know, it, it, it should, it, it is absolutely obvious now it needs to be in place and it would just improve our resilience massively. I'm hoping that we make some progress in the current conference of the parties. And I think COP27, COP27 yeah. yeah, which is going on in Sharm El Sheikh at the moment. Uh, the things I would really hope that come out of there is um, finally an adult discussion on loss and damage, because that potential transfer of money could be a thing that really is used to double down on global progress on renewables. Because Global progress on renewables, for example, has been really good in developing developed countries, but in emerging economies, it has been slow because it costs money and that isn't always the priority um, for, for very good reasons. I agree with Dara. We really need a lot of the measures that are trapped in the energy security bill, particularly the future system operator and its deep consideration of the role of local versus national. I think that's a debate we really need to have in the UK and to sort out and then making sure it all adds up to a functioning zero carbon energy system um, as well. That's quite important. Um, but we just need that holistic vision of where we're going. That's what we really need, to my mind. It's kind of like we've got enough of the evidence from citizens, from all sorts of citizens' assemblies, about what people want, expect from zero carbon. It's really government's job to get on and kind of like deliver their side of the bargain on this now. I mean, that's no small wish list, by the way, Jeff. I mean, you know, grown up strategic thinking at government level. I'm going to give you a, a positive in one year or a oh, bit negative in a year. So on the positive, I'd say absolutely right on energy efficiency. In a year's time, I hope we're in a better place for winter 2023 than we have been for winter 2022, both on security of supply, but also energy efficiency, because that is so important. We've wasted all the time we've had this year to do that. And I think for me, that has to be part of a wider information, education, empowerment um, program from government to make sure people are getting their homes ready for net zero. And that is about energy efficiency, but it's also about what do you need to do to decarbonize heat in your home? And it's also about how can you use energy when it's cheapest and most plentiful on the grid? What could you do to get your home smart ready or smarter? And it should be fair and everyone should be able to access it in some way, regardless of tenure, regardless of income. So we need to figure out what that is. Um, right now, we've got the review of electricity market arrangements going on. And I should think that's a really pretty good piece of work that the government's kicked off. And in a year's time, I hope that some of those really knotty questions about things like locational pricing and decoupling gas and electricity prices and things like that. Hope there's been some significant progress there in a sensible, measured way which considers all the right economic research and analysis and impact that's what we need not kind of jumping into making these huge decisions because of the potential unintended consequences and I also hope we're in a place where you know we have a kind of progress on the legislative side which includes the FSO and progress towards system and speeding up connections and, and things like that so that's the positive that would be great if in a year's time that's what we're talking about my worry is we may be in that perhaps less positive place where I really do hope something comes on energy efficiency. We're a week away from the mini budget. I'm hoping there'll be proper support for people post-March because prices are still twice what they were like this time last year, despite the government support, which is absolutely brilliant, the government support. And I think they've done a good thing there. Um, 
my worry is that politics will continue to reign supreme in a way that doesn't actually implement change for people. And that is a big concern when we are essentially about to enter a recession. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope they're listening. So a huge thank you both for joining us to Jeff and Dara. It's been really, really interesting. And and please keep up the great work on agitation and thoughtful um, commentary in and around the energy system because we need people like you to to keep us on track. So thank you so much for, for being with us today. Pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, do stay with us, listeners, for our regular post-pod chat, Animal, Vegetable, Mineral, with executive producer Jim Hayward. Um, so we'll just hear what's on Jim's mind. Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. So, Jim, what's on your mind this week? Oh, well, Amanda, I'm going to talk to you about mushrooms. Yeah, you know, and why and why not? <laughs> you know, I, I, really, I really love I love walking in the woods this time of the year and, and keeping an eye out uh, keeping an eye out for mushrooms, you know, on the forest floor or on trees or whatever. And, and do you know, Amanda, you know, why does a mushroom always make me smile? Oh, I, don't, I could feel a bad gym joke going on here. I've no idea. Why does a mushroom always make you smile, Jim? <laughs> be, be, because it's such a fun guy. Oh, yeah, very good. But you know, but, but seriously, I mean, mushrooms are—they are fungi or fungi, depends on how you want to say it, or even funguses. Um, uh, but you know, actually, the mushroom is the—it's the, the fruiting body uh, of a fungus, which appears above ground. And the biggest part of a, of a mushroom actually is the other the network of filaments or the mycelium, uh, which spread out below the ground and which can spread for huge, huge distances. And Amanda, here we are. Have a guess. Have a guess. What is the largest living organism on Earth? I've already sort of given it away, really, here. Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, you're going to tell me it's probably a mushroom, aren't you? Well, it is, actually. It's the, it's the, here's the first fascinating fungi factoid for you. <laughs> uh, is the biggest organism on Earth is actually a fungus. It's one particular honey fungus covers nearly 10 square kilometres uh, in the Blue Mountains in the US state of Oregon. That's amazing, isn't it? One fungus. One one fungus, one fungus. That's a hell of uh, an yeah, omelette, so, isn't it? That's one mushroom omelette uh, and a half, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, and, and, and you know they, they are fascinating things. I mean, they've got some great names. You've got Penny Bun, <laughs> uh, Chicken in the Woods, Shaggy Ink Cap, Lion's Mane. They're all sort of kind of descriptive of what they look like, really. But um, you know, and, and, and if you're in the birchwood, if you ever go into a birchwood, have a look out for the iconic red and white spotted fly, agaric mushroom, uh, which lots of us, you know, we, we we sort of kind of associate, don't we, with childhood stories and fairies and, and magical creatures and so on, but. You know, and some mushrooms give you uh, the, the names give you a bit of a warning about what it might what might happen to you if you eat them. Things like death cap, destroying angel, funeral bell. So, if, if anybody <laughs> anybody offers you a, an omelette with any of those, I should suggest you just don't. Um, so, you know, don't take up that. Jim, one. can I ask you what's the difference between a mushroom and a toadstool? Well, there isn't. You see, this is what I find frustrating. Toadstools, you know, it's the name we give to things which we don't like, you know, because they're sort of, you know, associated with slimy toads or what people used to regard as slimy toads, you know, way, way, way back when. And slow toads, as we know, aren't actually slimy at all. But, you know, we give the name toadstool generally to something that's poisonous and a mushroom like to something that's, that's edible. But, but you know, I think it's, uh, I, I prefer to call them all mushrooms. You know, the fruiting body of a, of a fungus is, is the mushroom, really. But there are different types of mushrooms. So some are parasitic and they sort of feed on plants and, and, and trees and suck out the nutrients and quite often they cause the plant to die. Uh, then we've got what we call the, the saprotrophic uh, mushrooms, which play a really, really important part in the decomposition of those plants, the things that have, that have died. 
they release special enzymes uh, which break down the decaying material and, uh, and allow the, the, the fungi to the fungi to absorb the nutrients. And here's something really exciting: um, fungus has recently been discovered that can break down plastics uh, in weeks rather than years. And if you remember, we talked about the greater wax mm-hmm. uh, moth caterpillar, which could could break down plastic. Well, the fungi they found out that a fungi uh, there's a particular type of fungus that can can do wow. that. So that's really exciting. And then uh, you've got another group, which are the, the mycorrhizal fungi, which form a sort of a symbiotic or a mutual relationship um, with other species like plants and trees. And, 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 and they help those plants to absorb more nutrients and moisture. Uh, and the fungi themselves actually give essential nutrients back to the plant. So, and in return, uh, the mycorrhizal fungi get uh, access to carbohydrates or sugars produced by the plants, so that, that, which they otherwise couldn't get. So it's, it's a real kind of win-win. Um, but it, you know, and it's, it's that symbiotic relationship which allows the trees to have this sort of underground conversation. Remember, we talked about the wood wide web at the last time when we talked about the oak tree. Uh, you know, things like being able to issue warnings about attacking insects, about drought, about disease. So, really, you know, really, really important. You know, there have been studies, fascinating studies, DNA studies, which show that there are thousands, th- literally thousands of different um, fungi in a single sample of soil. You know, so a handful of soil. Uh, you know, which many of many of those are unknown and they're hidden, and still to be discovered or ready to be investigated. So, uh, there's a whole series of podcasts we could do on soil health. I think there is. There um, is a and here's some more fascinating fungi factoids for you, Amanda. <laughs> okay, fungi are in a kingdom all of their own, but they're closer to animals than plants. So, this animal, vegetable, mineral. Uh, you know, I don't know quite where they would fit in that, but they're uh, and they have chemicals in their cells, uh, which in their cell walls, which are shared with lobsters and crabs. Isn't that amazing? I know, I know. 216 species of fungi thought to be hallucinogenic, mm. but there are 350 which are consumed as truffles and you know the mushrooms we buy on the shelves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and products made from fungi can be used as replacements for things like polystyrene foam, for leather, for building materials, uh, and even plastic car parts or replacing plastic car parts and things like that. So absolutely in- incredible. So listeners, next time you go for a walk in the woods, uh, and you spot a mushroom, look at it in absolute awe. Uh, give it loads and loads of love. Don't don't uh, don't destroy it. Just let it be, and just uh, recognise that the fungi of all sorts do such a fantastic, amazing job, and, and I'm in love with them. Yeah, fungi for the future. Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I don't know how you do this. I don't know where it comes from, but I'm absolutely confident that there'll be some fabulous fungi pictures going up on the Twitter feed um, on Instagram. Absolutely. So watch out for that and. Thanks, yep. Jim, as always, um, for enlightening us in the most um, erudite <laughs> and enjoyable way. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next time. Um, do keep your questions and comments and uh, observations coming. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter. Um, until then, take care and goodbye. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media. 